Welcome. I'm, I'm Adam. I'm one of the elders here at Midtown. Um, I, I work outside the church, um, and I'm, it's an honor to serve this church um, and serve in this way today um, in, in bringing the passage from Matthew 3 uh, to you guys. And so I'm, I'm really excited about that. We're in Matthew, and Matthew's a, a beautiful book. It's, it's, it's an account of Jesus' life, right? And, uh, and it, there's certainly history in it. There's certainly a ton of theology, beautiful theology. As Brandon has mentioned multiple times in the last couple of weeks as we've entered Matthew, there are so many layers within Matthew that we can't even begin to touch. So many connection points of fulfillment of Old Testament passages uh, and so on, and so on, and so on. But there's also this, this, this thing that Matthew wants for us that we really want to point out as we work, work through Matthew over the next year, 18 months or so, and that is this virtue-forming teaching of Jesus' life. What Jesus' life is, is, is telling us, what it's, what it's encouraging us to do, what it's encouraging us to be in life with him in his kingdom. Um, and so Jesus is this restoration of God's kingdom, and that's what we're learning um, all throughout Matthew. We want to learn something in it. And so I'm going to read Matthew 3. So if you guys will turn there with me, uh, Matthew 3, we're going to read the first 12 verses. Um, and this is, again, this is the, the story of John the Baptist. Um, it's, a, it's a big passage, not necessarily in length, but in magnitude, Certainly, we, we see the introduction of, of John the Baptist coming on the scene, and then, obviously, the start of Jesus' ministry. So, this is a big passage. It's the gospel. So, we're on page 856 um, in, this, in the Red Bibles around you, Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and, he said, and saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near, for he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John had a, had a camel hair com, er, garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptizing, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to baptism, to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these very stones." The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the, sh the shaft he will burn with fire that never goes out. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for um, your scripture. Thank you for uh, bringing it to us. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for blessing us with the words and let it mean something to us and let it speak to, to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show some, some pictures here up on the slide. Uh, have you guys... You're already chuckling. Have you guys um, ever been on 65, like 65 going south? And, and uh, we've got family in Nashville, we've got family in Louisville, and we like to go to the Panhandle. And so if you're on 60, so we're on 65 multiple times a year, um, oftentimes in traffic, st- sitting there. And if, if you are driving down 65, you will see these billboards. And you'll see them all over, the, all over the country most likely, but you'll see these billboards and uh, I don't, I, I see these billboards driving south, and I never know whether to, to laugh. So this is one of them, right? Uh, you can read it with this flatline heart monitor. And, and I never know whether to, to laugh or chuckle like you guys kind of just did, or, or cry, or be just totally thrown off, or, or I don't know. I have, I have a crazy mixed emotions. L- look at some of these other ones. Go to the next one. Where are you going, heaven or hell? Go to the next one. Hell is real. Who's seen this one? Yeah, exactly. Like 17 times in a row. There's often times where literally within the same two, three mile stretch, there's this hell is real. And, and I wonder, I have, again, I have so many mixed emotions about these, these things. I don't think they're the most tactful, so let me just go ahead and say that. But I'm... I'm I'm always curious when I see him. I'm like, what is the general response to these things? Right? What, what's actually, what are people actually feeling when they see these things? Because there, there is a prepared message here, right? It is a message of let's get prepared. This is a message of let's get prepared for doom and gloom without much of the good news of, of, of why we're getting prepared why we do need to repent. A lot of these are like, hey, hell is real. Repent because, you know, Satan is coming for you or something like that, like some old Baptist revival preacher. Like, you better get prepared. This is a prepared message, but these leave you um, longing for more, for a lot more. But Paul, or, but, but um, John doesn't hear in Matthew. John definitely, so I want us to see, John definitely comes with a message of a little bit of a doom and gloom. He comes with, I mean, you, you see it there, repent. Very plain and simple, one word, repent. He comes with a doom and gloom message, but he doesn't leave you with that. He gives you a lot more. What he wants for you is the why, the why I want you to repent, and it's something much better. It's, it, he points you to Jesus. He, he wants you to point your eyes to look at a Savior, and that's his ultimate Goal, And I, I love what Matthew is doing in this passage, and we're going to see it all throughout, which he's, he's striking a right balance between the law and grace. The law being, and I know a lot of us, when we, we hear the law, it confuses us a little bit. It's like, well, wait, we had the law, and the law was given, but now we have Jesus. He fulfilled the law, and so now all we need is, is faith in Jesus and grace alone. Very, very true. I'm not saying that the law is greater than Jesus and greater than his grace, but there is a balance. There's an importance that we as Christians need to remember the law, and we need to let the law kind of wash over us for a very specific reason, 
And that's what, that's what John is doing here in this passage. He wants the law to wash over us, to bring us to repentance. But he wants to give us something more. He wants the law, that conviction of the law, the holiness of the law to bring us to that conviction so that we look, so that we turn to Jesus. And that's really what I hope for us today as, as, we, as we look at three different things we're gonna, in this passage and the significance of a, a few different things that, that, that Matthew's actually pointing out. Um, the first is his coming. The second will be his attributes. And the third will be his message. Like, what is he actually saying? So coming, what we're going to talk about today, coming, his coming specifically, his attributes, and his message. The first, his coming, um, there's some beautiful stuff here. I, I can't even begin to unpack everything here in Matthew, but I want to point out a couple things about the very first verse. In those days, John the Baptist came this, would, this was setting the stage. The Israelites were longing for this. The people of God were longing for this coming. Um, and, and a couple significant things that we see first is that, that uh, John broke the silence. There was about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, known by theologians as the silence period where God was very much void in his voice. And the people were longing to hear him, were longing to get a response for him. And towards the end of the silence period, at the beginning of the Gospels, um, Zechariah, a Jew, and John's father, uh, he was serving in the temple, and an angel appeared to him to tell him he was going to have a son. Now, this would have been significant, because him and Elizabeth, his wife, were, they were praying for a son, they were praying for a child, they were older in age, and they had not been given a child but the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, appeared to him and said, you're having a son, and his name will be John, and he will be the prophet mentioned at the end of Malachi, who will turn many children of Israel to their God, and he would be like the one um, mentioned in Isaiah 40, who will prepare the way of the promised son. So this John, when, when the angel appears to Zechariah, he's, he's, he's saying that this John is going to be the one the Israelites have been waiting for, to prepare the way, to, to introduce them to the promised son. And I, I think this is significant because it is right here with Zechariah, it's right here with John the Baptist where God's silence is broken. When this 400-year period, when, when the angel of the Lord, he speaks it's God's voice coming through the angel Gabriel. He speaks and he says, it is in John the Baptist that my silence will be broken. And it's not, it's not um, ironic that, that many know John the Baptist as the voice. He's, often, he's oft, often labeled as the voice. And it was his voice, his cry, his howl that the Israelites were listening for. And it was like when his voice came out of the wilderness, as it says there, it was like, a, a ringing of the bells. And, and it was a specific bell that these Israelites, their ears would have been tuned to hear. They were, they were waiting for him. The second thing, uh, the second significance of his coming um, is, is the law and, and the fact that he represents the law. Commentator, and you'll hear, you'll hear us mention this commentator. He's got a brilliant, his name's D Dale Bruner. He's got a brilliant, um, uh, just, take on, on Matthew, but it's, it's both 
theological and pastoral. You'll hear us use him a lot. He says it this way, wherever the ministry of adult Jesus is told in historic fidelity, it begins with John the Baptist. Wherever the gospel comes in its depth, it follows the proclamation of the law in its heights. Without the law, there is no gospel. Without the Old Testament, or without the Old Testament, no New Testament. And without John the Baptist proceeding, we do not rightly, we do not rightly hear Jesus' following. Again, this isn't, this isn't saying that, he's not saying that these two are equal, but what he is saying is that there is something about the law, there is something that, about John's teaching that is, is, it needs to precede what is to come in Jesus. And you see it that way in all four Gospels. John comes as the last prophet of the Hebrew Scriptures to prepare the way of Jesus. You see it in all four. And what is he preparing them with? He's preparing them with a message to repent. And why are they repenting? They're repenting because they're breaking the law, right? Let's just look at one law, the very first law of the Ten Commandments that God provides Moses. Law one, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, love me first, love me first and love me most above all other things, and we can stop right there, right? For us, for the Israelites, they knew immediately that they had, they had broken the commandment, that they had broken the law. But more importantly, it, it wasn't just the fact that they, they knew that they broke the law. Um, he wanted to see, he, what John was doing here um, was he wanted people to see I mean, kind of symbolically with the law in hand, is that you're never going to live up to, the, to what the law is asking you to do. We've got the law. We've got the commandments. We've got God's um, command and desires for our life, and we know that we're broken. What he wanted them to see, both the Israelites and what he wants us to see, is our desperate need for a Savior, our absolute need for a Savior. That's why St. Augustine says it this way, the law was given so that grace may be sought, and grace was given so that the law may be fulfilled. Jesus, he will be uh, the one to stand before the law and perfectly obey it. In our place, for us, doing what we cannot do. And, and I know if you're like me, um, you often see the law as antiquated. Maybe some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about with the law. But the law, um, it, it can often be overlooked by those of us in, who, who spend a lot of time in the New Testament, right? We can see it as inferior. We can see the whole entire Old Testament as inferior to the New Testament. And that leads us to miss the importance of this law. And we, we've got more to come on this in the, in the coming weeks, in the coming passages, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. But it leads us to miss the importance of the law. The law should be very much alive in us, just as Jesus is alive in us. We have to hear the voice of John in addition to the voice of Jesus. Prior to the voice of Jesus, we have to let the law indict us as sinners so that we are falling on our face, so that we are in, in utter desperation. That's the posture that John wants us to get to. So those are a couple beautiful things of the coming. Let's look at some attributes. Let's look at some attributes that, these, that the Israelites, you see in verse 6 that they were, they were um, coming out in numbers and being baptized. Why were they doing this? They, it, was, it was his voice. It was the fact that there was this long anticipation for him. But there's also a, a, a few key attributes. One, and I'll do this quickly, his, his physical. 
If you look at his physical attributes, um, I think of verses four through six on the screen here, I'll read it. Now John had a, had a camel hair garment, significant, with a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locust and wild honey. The people from J- Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Matthew is, is making a very clear physical distinct, er, connection here. He, he's, he's showing us that John the Baptist is the fulfillment. He is the new Elijah that was mentioned in Malachi. The Israelites were told that God would send this new Elijah before the day of the Lord comes. They were looking for this man in the wilderness. They would have noticed him. That very specific language, John had a camel hair garment with a, with a leather belt around his waist. If you, go, if you went back to 2 Kings uh, 1, you would see that Elijah is described in a very, very similar way. It says he was a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. There was a, a direct connection. There was other attributes about the two. They were both from the wilderness. They were both um, rough and gruff and and kind of loud and obnoxious, they, they were coming with a loud, urgent cry. And so these people would have, they were promised in, at the end of the Old Testament this, this new Elijah, and they would, have re- they would have recognized him. This would have been very, very clear, very, very specific for them. Second, the attributes of, of, uh, of his message. So you've got his physical attributes, right? And then uh, there's attributes about his message that may seem kind of crazy to us, that may seem off-putting to us, that you're going to see here, but it, it worked. It worked for them. Um, and there's a few different attributes of, of, his, of his coming. He was super loud, right? That was his first attribute of, of his message. He was really, really loud. He was loud because he wanted somebody to hear. He wanted, um, he, he intended to be loud so that people could actually hear him and listen to him. I, I don't know if you guys have a, I liken it to this. Have you guys, if you guys have children, I've got four of them. Um, a baby, and, and really more like a maybe six-month, eight-month, nine-month um, child, uh, their, their screams can be unbelievably piercing, right? My kids are, are super loud, but there is one kid, he actually is in this church, not here right now, um, and I've, I've, I've asked the parents for permission for this, so just know that. I'm, I'm about to pick on this kid, but I love him to death. He's a dear friend. Um, Rachel and Ben Eiler have a kid. Their oldest son, his name is Walker. When Walker was a baby, I'm not kidding you, it is the loudest scream you could ever imagine in your entire life. When, when Walker, they used to come over to our house because they couldn't console him. And so when we were, when he was a baby, like three months old, they would come over, we would help pass him around and, and, and hold him. I, he had a scream that when, when he would scream, kids on the other side of the world would wake in their sleep. I'm, I'm not kidding. It was piercing. And everyone could hear it. You, you were awoken to this cry. And I think that's like John's cry. I, John's cry was awakening these people. They, he was awakening the Israelites. He came with intentionality. It was urgent. His voice was urgent. That's the second characteristic. The attribute of his message was it was urgent. That's the central mood. He had no time to waste. The reason he had no time to waste is because he says the, the kingdom of God is here, 
right now. And so I don't have any time to waste. I need you to get prepared for that. That is my most important theme right now. That is my most important mission, and it's urgent. The, the third thing is forthright tenor. If you notice, you'll definitely notice in, in verses 7 through 10 that his tenor was pretty aggressive, um, off-putting for a lot of us, right? He was, it, it, it felt like maybe a, a, a roadside teacher, right? A roadside um, uh, preacher. That's, I mean, that was what he was, he was being that aggressive with, with his tenor. And I, I mean, I could only imagine, um, just imagine this actually. So uh, if, if I were to come right now and, and say the message that he was saying, which was, hey, I want all you guys to come. I'm going to tell you to repent. You're going to be baptized, and then you're all going to confess your sins out loud. If I were to just come in here and say, okay, you guys, I really want you, I'm going to open a mic here. I want you guys to come down. I'm going to leave the mic open. I'm going to let you guys um, uh, just have it, and, and just I want you to start confessing your sins. That's what I want you to do. For whatever time I allot, if I was that passive with it, for whatever time I allotted, I don't think anyone would come. But, like him, if my tenor was very similar to his tenor, if I came and I said, hey, um, I'm going to lock these doors. No one's leaving. Our church depends on it. Our community depends on it. Your kids' lives depend on it. Um, the, the health of, of, of your marriage and the health of your future relationships depend on it. And, um, oh, by the way, your faith your, your Christianity, your eternity, all depends on it right now. you got to come up here, every single person. And if you don't confess, we're all doomed, and you're not going to actually see Jesus himself. Maybe, I don't know if you would, but maybe that would provide some urgency. That's the difference, right? That's the difference of his time. His tenor was not soft. His tenor was very real. And so I, I want to ask us today, what, is, what about John's approach should be similar to our approach. Now, I'm, my last point here in a minute is all about his message. His message is, is, is much about you and is much about, hey, this, I, I need to look at myself before I, look at it, before I looked outward. Um, and that is the, the precursor, certainly. But what, it, what should our approach be towards people in our community for the health of our community? And I've got three things. The first one is speak loudly. Yeah, speak loudly. What do I mean by speak loudly? I mean, speak. For me, I don't need to speak loudly. Some people are like, you need to be quiet. Like, you need to speak, like, less loud. But for a lot of you, it, it really is just use your voice. Use your voice. Speak. Allow the Spirit to overwhelm you with conviction, to overwhelm you with love and care for other people, and use your voice. Use your voice in relationships. Start talking to people about things that matter. Start, start talking about the paramount things of Scripture, specifically this text. The second thing is move with urgency in relationships. I don't know if you're like me, but oftentimes in relationships, I can, uh, I can spend days, months, years trying to just build this relationship. We often, as Christians, I think, are like, well, I gotta build a relationship with them. I, that's what matters. That's gotta be the foundation. I gotta build a relationship with them before I actually start talking truth with them and, and, and around them and to them. That's so true, no doubt. But have a sense of urgency, please. 
Have a sense of urgency in your relationships, um, certainly in your MC, in your discipleship, in people that have given you the right to, to speak to them, to speak truth to them, to be um, in right relationship with them. Those people move with urgency. The third is be forthright in discipleship. No doubt, if you are in discipleship, um, you have given people the freedom to call you to repentance and to point you to Jesus. Nonstop. You have given them the right. And oftentimes, uh, I feel like, I know for my, my person, in, in discipleship, we'll spend, let's say we have an hour, we'll spend, the, we'll spend 50 minutes doing catch-up and, and, and maybe even touching on Scripture and maybe even reciting memor- uh, verses that we've memorized, which are all great. And we'll get to the last, like, five minutes, and we're like, so... Um, how's your, how's your addiction? Or, or um, how is your, how's your marriage with your, your wife? Did you, did you actually follow through with what you said you were going to follow through with? So we leave like very little time for that because we really just want to avoid it. What I'm asking you is don't avoid that. What John is asking you is don't avoid that. There is so much good in the exposure and in, in the indictment of us. There is so much good in that, in pointing us to our sins, acknowledging the sins before each other and before God. There is so much good in it. Lastly, his message. He said, repent and look to Jesus. Repent and look to Jesus. That's just full of the gospel. That's the gospel over and over and over. Um, What does he mean by repent? I think oftentimes in our English in our English language, we think about repent, and we think that repent often, it, it, very similar to the billboards, it's like, you need to say, I'm sorry, you need to do something about it, you need to obey, and it's very inward focused, and it's all about the wrong things that you do, which I don't think it's, it's void of that, but that's not all of it. Dale Bruner references a German theologian, Joachim Nilke, who I think has maybe the best definition of repentance. I'll put it on the screen. The best definition of repentance I've ever heard. It's very simple. It's repentance means the radical recognition of God. The radical recognition of God. I love that definition so much more than the typical I'm sorry. I'm sorry is all about us. It's the intuitive part of repent right? The, the, the intuitive part of repent, saying, I, I'm, I know the things that I did wrong. If you notice here in, in Matthew, John just says repent. He doesn't actually tell you what to repent of because your conscience knows exactly what you need to repent of. You know, you know exactly what you're doing wrong. That's the intuitive part. The radical part, the part that John's trying to get at here is this recognition of, I cannot do it. I I may do the wrong things. It's an assault on yourself. It's I'm trying to build a world for me. I'm trying to build a kingdom where I am the king. It's an attack on self-centeredness. 
Because self-centeredness is the, is the absolute enemy to the kingdom of God. And that's really what try, John's trying to get at. He's like, Don't, I, I want you to confess the wrong things that you're doing, but you need to confess you. You need to confess that you're trying to build a world that is apart from God, that you're trying to build a world that is all about you, and I'm trying to get you to turn from yourself and turn to him. That's really what, what John is, is talking about when he says repent. Um, I don't know if you guys have, have watched the documentary um, on Bernie Madoff. Do any of you guys know who Bernie Madoff is? Okay, wow, a lot more. I'm not the only finance nerd in here. Maybe his story is just fascinating, really. Um, it's fascinating because uh, he, he pulled off the greatest Ponzi scheme in American history, Right, a Ponzi scheme where you take money from people, you, you, you tell them that you're going to invest that money, that they, they believe you for whatever reason or, or, or another because you have credibility. Um, you actually don't invest that money. You take that money. You do whatever you want with it. Um, and then in order to keep them satisfied, those investors satisfied, you've got to keep raising money in order to pay those people a return or their money back. And it's just vicious cycle that I, I don't know why you would ever do it because it never actually is going to end. Well, there is an end to that. Um, and for, for Bernie Madoff, there was, a, there was a definite end, not until he, rose, he, he was able to, to raise $65 billion within this Ponzi scheme, but it ended for him. And, and we all look at that and we're like, oh, that's so bad. What was his problem? It actually didn't start all that big. It started with the, his, he worked for his father-in-law, who was an accountant. His, his father-in-law had clients, and they, they were... Um, he had this little sidecar investment strategy that was pretty risky that none of the clients actually knew all that much about. And one day the market fell apart. He lost a bunch of money. But instead of telling the clients that he lost a bunch of money, he decided to go to his father-in-law and they just paid the clients back out of their own pockets. And the reason that they did that was because they didn't want to tell them that they had failed because they wanted, to, they wanted to continue to keep the reputation of the firm and keep raising money so that they could keep doing what they're doing. See, Bernie Madoff was more okay with being a liar than a failure. Some of us may be more okay with being unjust than uncomfortable, or being bulimic than ugly, or being exploitative than poor, or being a gossip than uninfluential or being a denouncer than unpopular. And I, I want you to stop and think for a minute and ask yourself right now, what is it that you are okay with being? What is it that you are okay with being for the sake of your kingdom? What is it? Take a second. Think about it. It should come to your, to your mind pretty quickly. What is it that you consistently do that you're like, I'm okay with this because it gives me this? And it is in direct conflict with the holiness and the goodness of God. For me, I'm just like Bernie Madoff. I really am. I am, I, I, I unfortunately hate the idea of failure. Hate it. I mean, it is, it, it, it just pains me. I'm such Everything in my life is about winning. It, is, it has been the central problem of my life from birth to now. And it's this idea that I cannot be a failure. It influences my decisions. It's my source of all anxiety. Um, it, it, it forces me to do things that I don't want to do. 
that are horribly destructive, and I do them over and over and over for a period of time, that's what this is. That's the magnitude of what this is, and that's what I'm asking you. What is that in your life? It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm consistently choosing this, and it's in direct conflict with the goodness of God. That's um, unfortunately a miserable path, and we choose it. We consistently choose it. Um, it's the thing that will kill this community. It'll kill our marriages, our parenting. It is really uh, us continuing to choose sin so that we me- measure up to the expectation of that position. We have a position in our mind, and we measure, measure up to it. Maybe it's an elder. Maybe it's being a Soma mom. Maybe it's being the best lo- looking or the most influential. But what John the Baptist um, is, is saying is you've got to root that out. Just like what, how he says it in, in verses 7 through 10 to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Just like that. He's saying to them exactly, we've got to put ourselves in their shoes for a minute because his message to us is the very same thing as it is to them. You pack of snakes. You brood of vipers. That's a pretty aggressive, I don't like being called a snake. I, you could call me a lot, of, a lot of bad words, but snake just feels terrible. That's what he calls him. He says, you snakes, you have never admitted your weakness before. And you don't care about acknowledging your sin before your people. You walk around here believing you are secure in the covenant of Abraham. But he says, you remember what, what he says in this passage, God can make this, this stone a descendant of Abraham. This covenant that you're finding hope and faith in, it doesn't work for you. Don't come in here. This is what he's saying to us. Don't come in here. Don't come into this room, Soma, singing these songs, saying these liturgies, listening to these messages. And maybe worst of all, taking this communion, believing that you are secure unless you do this first. See, John's message of repentance is it's not for the secure, it's for the insecure. His message is for those who will give up that position that we've longed for. It's, it's those who will give up the kingship of their own kingdom. It's those who will actually be radical. See that, the radical recognition, that's what is radical, is openly accusing ourselves daily. Allowing this law, allowing the goodness of God, the commands of God to accuse us daily of the things that we um, are, are doing, but more importantly, the kingdom that we're building for ourselves. And that's why 1 Peter 4.17 says, for the judgment starts with the household of God. It starts right here. This wrath starts right here, and it's good, and it's awesome, but thank God that is not where John ends. Thank God that John does not end with, repent, with you must repent. Thank God uh, John doesn't end with these billboards. He gives us something to look to, something that is amazing, something that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. John does rub our face in the dirt a little bit. He certainly does. He brings, I I just picture this imagery, this imagery is good for me in this passage. I feel like he brings the Israelites, he's bringing me to the the riverbank, and he's, he's rubbing my face in the dirt, saying, yeah, this is what you should look like. 
because of your sins, because of who you are, because of this world that you're trying to build for yourself that's going to lead to destruction and misery and loneliness, I'm going to rub your face in the dirt because that's what you should look like. But he doesn't leave us in that admission. He doesn't leave us in the darkness. He lifts us up, so he pulls you up from that riverbank, and he points your eyes to the heavens. But actually, he, he, he dunks you in the water first, and he wipes that dirt off, and he says, I'm not ever going to let you go, look, go to the king looking like that, so let's get you super clean. Let's purify you because the one that you're about to go to, you're about to go stand before the real king. I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize with the spirit. That's what John does. He lifts your eyes to the heavens. Look at uh, the text here in, 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 in verse 11. I, w- I want you to see this, and we'll end with this. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the only one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself, he himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John knows exactly who he is and who he isn't. He knows that he was called, and it is his mission to turn people from themselves and point them to the only one who can save. It is he himself that will baptize you with the the Holy Spirit. In John 3, I love, love, love this passage, Um, and I hope it is our, this is my, this is my cry for our church, honestly. In, In John 3, starting in verse 25, there is a dispute among, this is back with John the Baptist, there's this dispute among uh, John's disciples and a Jew, particularly in regards to baptism. And his disciples came back to him and he said, um, he, he said, they said, everyone is going across the Jordan and being baptized by Jesus with this sense of jealousy almost. With this sense of, we're losing our influence, John the Baptist. What are you going to do about it? And John responds with the most incredible thing, and it's just a, it's a, it's a handful of words, but it's something that I want, it, I want to just rinse over you over and over and over. And if you take it this week and you say it, it's the first thing that you wake up from or wake up with. I hope it is. It'll change you. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, John was not concerned about the world that he was creating, the kingdom, the influence, whatever that was being brought before him, his disciples were. They were concerned that they were losing their influence and power and authority, but he said, no, he must increase, so therefore I must decrease. I must put my face in the mud, and then I I must lay, lay my life down before God and guess what? He offers, an, he offers us the opportunity to increase with him. That is, that's the beauty of, of this passage. I was with David Haley, the new executive director, a couple, like a week and a half ago. And he said, um, hey, he's asking everybody that he's, he's meeting with, he said, hey, what, what, do you, what do you want most for this church? I'm like, whoa, that's a massive question. Um, I don't know. Let me think about that. So I took about 30 seconds to, to think about that, and which is why I'm bringing it into this, this, this 
taught today, this sermon, why I'm, I'm connecting it here, this is the verse that came to my mind. When he asked me, hey, what do you, what do you want most for this church? I said, I, I hope that we develop a posture of he must decrease, or he, I must decrease and he must increase. I must decrease, he must increase. I hope that becomes our posture. Man, that's my prayer. And I want that to be my daily prayer. That is what radical recognition looks like. And when we radically recognize, when we, we lay down our lives and look to him, he promises us something that is amazing. He doesn't take our power. He actually, he actually renews our power. He puts our power that we've been longing for aside, and he gives us a very, very new, very, very unbelievable spirit-driven power. And it's a power to do these things. It's a power to choose truth over winning. It's a power to choose justice over comfort, to choose his image over your beauty, to choose generosity over riches, to choose praising others over yourselves, to choose boldness over popularity. I want to close with this. It's a, it's a quote from C.S. Lewis. And you can go ahead and close your eyes because I want to read these, these words over you. Let this, this sums up everything. C.S. Lewis, it's from, from Mere Christianity. It's a collection of his, of, of his thoughts. You can close your eyes. These are beautiful words from, from C.S. Lewis. It says, the principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real life. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you. Um, I, I pray that this doesn't come as a message that is too heavy, that it comes as a message that is actually light. It comes as a message that we, we've got to recognize repentance and its importance in our lives. Let us not be lost on that. Let us practice it and let us fall on our face, but know that you are going to lift us up. Know that we have the opportunity to look to you and be cleansed and be cleansed and, get, and then given the power of the Spirit. Thank you for the words of the gospel. Thank you for giving us the gospel. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.